I hope that you brought your Bible with you this morning. If you did, I want to invite you to take it and turn to 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 19. As you're turning there, I'm just going to tell you, folks, that, uh, you know, when you undertake to preach a series of messages about speed bumps, what you're doing is you are headed toward a place where you are going to address uncomfortable topics. Today we are going to address an uncomfortable topic. We've talked about bitterness, anger, the damage that it does to us when we refuse to forgive others. We talked about anxiety, fear. We talked about celebration, which is necessary. But today, I want to visit with you about an epidemic in our country. And the epidemic is of depression. And I know that there probably are some in this room who are saying, well, you know what, that's not an issue for me. I get it, and that's okay. I know that there are a lot of folks who, when you start talking about depression, they come to this concept, of, well, you know what, people just need to grow up, get over it, pull themselves up. Sounds good. John Wayne would appreciate it. It's not necessarily reality. Millions of Americans suffer from depression at some level, some form, some fashion. Billions of dollars are spent every year in our nation on therapy, treatment, antidepressants. And I probably wouldn't be nearly as bothered by that if it weren't for the fact that we have recently seen over the last several years a spike in suicide rates that we've never seen before. And not just in the rates, but in the attempts. And I know that, you know, like I said, some people are really uncomfortable with this. I want you to understand something this morning. As you look at me right here, there is no one in this room more uncomfortable than me. And I'll be perfectly honest and transparent with you this morning as to the reason why it has impacted my family. I grew up with it in my family. I saw what it did. I, I saw the devastation that it could wreak. I was fortunate and blessed that it did not cut deeper than what it did. A few years ago, while serving on the executive committee of our convention, the president of our executive committee lost one of his daughters to suicide. Had never known that there was depression, anxiety, or anything else that would lead her there. He and his wife were devastated. As a group, we tried to walk alongside him as best we could to encourage, to, to give help, to, to try to hold his arms up. It's difficult. And there are many within the Christian world who say, well, you know... We really don't need to talk about this because we need to just stay focused on Scripture. 
Okay, I'm good with that. I'm a preacher of the word. But let me ask you a question. What do you do when you're reading scripture and you come to someone who's battling depression in, in scripture? If you don't talk about it, you're neglecting the truth that's right there before you in the word of God. And I want you to understand what I've come to believe about Christianity as I've walked with the Lord through the decades of my life and, and spent these decades in ministry. Christianity is not some pie-in-the-sky philosophy of self-helpisms. It's about a personal relationship with our Heavenly Father that comes about through uh, his knowing His Son, Jesus Christ. And in the knowing of him, we have the opportunity to lean into him when we struggle. Say, I'm not sure God understands. Oh, yes. Because you see, Jesus is God in flesh. And John told us he became flesh and dwelt among us for a while. And the reason he did that was so that he could identify with all of our infirmities. He walked the same dusty roads that we do and he experienced the same struggles that we do and will. So God understands. Now before I proceed any further, before we even read scripture... I hope you have your Bible open to 1 Kings 19 because that's where we're going to be. But, but before we even get there, let me say something because I want all of you to hear this. I want all of you to know this. I am not going to offer you an easy, quick fix. Because if you truly are suffering from depression, my friends, there are no easy, quick fixes. Okay? And I'm not going to tell you if you just trust Jesus, everything will be okay. Because if you're truly suffering from depression, that's not the case. So why on earth are you going to talk about this, preacher? Because I want you to understand, God knows. God loves you. And God does offer helps. And some of those helps you may have to find outside of this room. You may need someone you can talk to. You may need some type of pharmaceutical help. You may need to spend time with a doctor who can help you get over some hurdles. But I'm telling you, the best first step that anyone can take is a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why I want to talk about this. Because you're a believer, a follower... Because you know God does not make you immune. And that is proven in the passage we're going to read this morning. So if you've got your Bible open to 1 Kings chapter 19, we're going to read. It's a lengthy passage, but it goes by quickly, I promise. And if you can and will, I'm going to invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word this morning. 1 Kings 19, beginning at verse 1, familiar account. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done. Uh, by the way, they'd just come off of Mount Carmel. There'd been a contest, a competition. By the way, anytime there's a contest and God's in it, whoever's opposing to him loses. Okay? God won. Baal lost. The prophets of Baal had been put to death. Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Short version, I'm going to kill you. 
Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the desert, he came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat. For the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied again, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel, Moholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. Hear the word of the Lord. Father, I thank you this morning for your precious word. And I pray that you would help us this morning as we spend moments together here to, to hear your truth. Father, so often we expect to hear you in one way when you're trying to speak to us in another. I pray that this morning you would simply help us to hear. To hear your voice and to know that you alone are God. Father, in our brokenness, in our infirmity, in our despair and in our hurt, May we cling to you, your promises, and your word. 
Father, I pray that where there is healing needed, you would grant it. Now teach us the truth from your written word. May your Holy Spirit speak to each of our hearts, for we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. This account in the Old Testament is probably one of, if not the most dramatic account of God's pastoral care that's ever been recorded. Elijah was one of God's prophets, and he was a great prophet. And you read the story of Elijah. It's not long. There's not a whole lot about it, about him. There's not a lot we know, but God used him in a mighty way. In chapter 18, he arrived at a great moment of truth, both in his ministry and in his life, when he met with the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, on the top of Mount Carmel. A contest. A contest between the false gods and the prophets who served them, and the one true God and the prophet who served him. I hope you're familiar with the count. If you're not, listen quickly. I'm going to summarize it for you. The 450 built an altar. They sacrificed their animals. They placed the sacrifice upon the altars and the wood, and they prayed. And they prayed, and they prayed, and they cried out, and they danced, and they did everything they normally did in their worship to try to manipulate their God in order to get him to send down fire and consume the sacrifice they had prepared for him. With all of their singing and praying and dancing and shouting, nothing happened. In their desperation, they thought perhaps he requires more of us. They began to cut themselves. They began to bleed as a sacrifice to God, their God who was no God. And what they experienced was silence in the heavens. And then it was Elijah's turn. And he built his altar. And he stacked the wood upon it and he slew the bull for the sacrifice and placed it on that wood. You'd think, okay, everything's good. No. Let's go a little further. Bring me some barrels of water. Whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. Listen, they were okay with rocks and wood and bulls, but they were in the middle of a drought. Dude's dumping all our water on top of his critter. No dancing, no shouting, no cutting, no big deal, just a simple prayer. And the one true God answered fire from heaven fell. And man, what a fire it was. It consumed the sacrifice. It consumed the wood. It consumed the stones. It burned the dust and it licked up the water that had run away from the altar. I'm talking, this is a big win. Okay? I don't know if you've ever been in a contest like this, but this is a big win. One versus 450. And God wins. Things got a little out of hand. Elijah went to war for God. 450 prophets of Baal died that day. Again, it it was a great victory. It seems ironic to so many of us when we read the story. That the day after 
Elijah's greatest spiritual victory, he was in total collapse. From the mountaintop of Jehovah's wind to the valley of his depression. And that's what I want us to look at. I want to see how, how does this come about. And if you've got your Bible open, keep it right there. 1 Kings 19, because we're going to look at this together. And I just want to break this down. Please understand, I could preach on this for probably the next three months and we still wouldn't get through all the subject matter. I'm not trying to do that. I'm simply trying to get us to see that here's a speed bump that affects many people. And it affects a lot of people at a lot of different levels. I understand there are different levels. In this room, there are different levels. There are people in this room who suffer from melancholy. All right? I'm one of those people. All right? When it gets cloudy for a week and a half and I don't see the sunshine, you know, I, uh, everything just turns upside down. Right? I need my sunshine. Man, I get a morning like this and I'm ready to go. I don't care if it's 10 below. If the sun's shining, everything's good. Not so for everybody. Some people, the cold does that to them. But I also understand that there are people who suffer from mild or, or a mid-level depression. And then there are those who go all the way into clinical depression. And I mean, they are so far gone that it is, it is unbelievable to see where they're at. And, and those are folks that need tremendous amounts of help. I'm not trying to oversimplify this. I'm not trying to say one thing fits all. And I'm not trying to say that it's not real. It is. But I want us to see that we also have some inputs in this. So what are you talking about? Let's start by just simply acknowledging a fact. Sometimes we feed our depression. Say, so how, how do we feed depression? Well, let's, let's look at this situation. You see, Elijah, he reveals some classic symptoms leading into and representing depression. So what are you talking about? Well, there's fear, there's anxiety, there's self-loathing, and, and these are things that are just a part of it. Elijah had just had this great victory like we talked about. Do you remember what started out here in verse 3? Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Afraid? He just killed 450 men with a sword. I would think he would be looking in the mirror and saying, I'm a bad man. Instead, he gets a message from a queen who says, I'm going to kill you. And he's afraid. And he runs for his life. You see, often those who are fighting against or have surrendered to depression battle against a sense of pessimism. I hear people tell me all the time, I don't know what's happening. I'm not aware of anything that's going on, but I, I just feel like I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. There's that pessimism creeping in. You see, there's something happening in their lives, and maybe they can't identify. Now, Joshua, or Elijah, he knew what he was up against. He knew this was about Ahab and Jezebel. He knew who his enemy was. He knew his life had been threatened because this queen was trying to comfort her pouty husband. But in his depression, he was at the end. He said, why is he there? I mean, how did this happen? Simple, folks. Okay, I, I, listen, I'm not going to go into a whole lot of this, but simple. Number one, he was physically exhausted. You're going to see that. Number two, he had been on an adrenaline rush like nobody's business when he was on Mount Carmel. During that competition and during that battle, his adrenaline had been running so high that probably he didn't need to eat anything for several days. I mean, I, listen, sometimes I tell people I run on adrenaline and coffee, and I do, but can I just give you a word of warning? When you run on adrenaline, there's going to come a day when the adrenaline is going to stop flowing, and when it stops, you're going to crash. That's right. 
If I could have a dollar for every time I've had a pastor tell me on Monday morning, well, I wrote my letter of resignation today. If I could just have a buck for every time I've done it. Why? Because you wake up on Monday morning, guess what? The adrenaline rush is gone. It's over. This is where the adrenaline's at. It's when God's people are worshiping together. It's whenever you have the opportunity to open the word and talk to folks. And then all of a sudden, on Monday morning, guess what? Nobody remembers what you said. And most folks have gone out about their lives. And most people have forgotten what even happened in God's house yesterday. And it's a downer. Now, that's just a light case of what Elijah was going through. In his fear, in his anxiety, he runs away. And he decides he can't go any further. Did you see that in verse 4? He came to a broom tree. Don't worry about what kind of tree it was. He found a tree, went and sat down under it. And basically, here's what he said. God, I'm done. Just kill me. Take me home. I'm done. He was finished. I'm not, I'm not any better than my ancestors. It doesn't matter that you called me to a specific purpose. It doesn't matter that you empowered me and did some great things in my life. It doesn't matter that you used me to do things that revealed you to an entire nation of people. I'm no better than anybody else. Just kill me and get it over with. And I'm going to tell you something. Elijah probably was even in the middle of that process. He's struggling with the guilt. You know what guilt I'm talking about? No, you don't. Let me explain it to you. Elijah knew who he was. He was the prophet of God. God had called him. How could it possibly be that a God-called man could be this desperate? How could it possibly be that if God had called him, empowered him, used him like that, how could he feel like this? It's so It's so human. It's so like everybody else. And everybody knows that the men God's called, they're not like everybody else. That's a joke. Not only are they like everybody else, usually they're a little bit worse. But see, people tend to take that man that God has called and they put him on a pedestal. And can I tell you something about a pedestal? The one thing I have learned, well, two things I've learned. One, when you get on a pedestal, the air gets thinner. And because the air gets thinner, it's a whole lot easier to fall. And here was Elijah. He's off the pedestal now, folks. He's under the tree saying, God, you can just take me. If for me to continue on living is an unnecessary burden for the world, let's just end it. So how in the world does a person wind up here? Because I know some of you are saying, well, I've never felt anything like that. Some of you are saying, oh, yeah, been there. How do you get there? First step is exhaustion. Exhaustion. It's that exhaustion that follows the adrenaline rush when you crash, and that's what happened in his life. But can I tell you what comes along with that? The natural comrade of that type of exhaustion is isolation. Did you see what he did? Did you, did you catch it or did you miss it? Mm. That's kind of a I'm not sure, so let me point it out to you. Because I think you need to catch this and make sure you understand. He made one of the worst mistakes that anyone battling against depression coming on can possibly make. In verse 3 going into verse 4, look at what it says. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the desert. The one guy who was there to serve him, to take care of him, to help him, to minister to his needs, he cut him off. 
And he goes by himself into the wilderness, into a place of isolation, a place of separation. And in this frazzled condition, he, he, he does this not realizing, I'm doing the worst thing I can possibly do. What's the big deal about isolation, preacher? Let me just tell you a couple of things. Number one, isolation is where we tend to let our brains run wild. We can paint the worst case scenario better than anybody in the world when we're by ourselves. We can think of all the awful things that can happen, that probably will happen, that probably should happen to us. And when we're by ourselves and there's nobody there to encourage us, we can invest our energy, what little bit we have left, in throwing the biggest pity parties on the face of the earth. That's where he's at. Oh God, I'm useless. I'm no better than anybody else in my family. Just put it into me. I mean, let me tell you another thing that happens. You say, well, why in the world do we need to know all this? Well, number one, we need to be able to look in the mirror and see ourselves. But number two, we also need to be able to look at other people and recognize some things and see, you know, maybe we need to be helping each other. So let me tell you another thing that happens. So often when people are headed down a, a road to depression, is they become hostile. They become hostile to others and they become hostile to themselves. Sometimes in a, in a, in a last-ditch effort to hold on to a little bit of sanity, we, we try to shift the blame. We become critical of other people, hostile. Listen, Elijah, he's looking at himself saying, I'm no better than anybody else. He's already hostile toward himself, but, but he's also, you know what, he finally gets to that point. Did you see what he did? He stood up in front of God and said, it's really not my fault. It's your people. It's your nation. It's Israel. God, they turned on you. I'm serving you. I'm the only one, by the way. You should just know how blessed you are to have me. I'm serving you. They turned on you. They tore down your altars. They broke your covenant. They put your servants to the sword. Listen, there are probably some people in this room right now who feel like Elijah did. If that's the case, I want you to look up and I want you to take heart. And I don't just want you to take heart. I want you to do something more than that. I want you to take the initiative. I want you to understand something this morning. There's not, I, I can't fix you. I can't, I, there's no cure-all. There's no quick fix. But I want you to understand there's some simple things that if you are battling, if I am battling, if we are fighting against this and we know it's coming at us, and none of you are going to admit that it is. I'm just, I know that. So I'm just talking to a bunch of pious-looking faces. That's all right. But I want you to understand if you are engaged in this battle, there are some things you can do. Force yourself to do what is needed. Sometimes the most simple self-care matters are the things we have to invest in. What in the world are you talking about? Verse 5. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. Rest. Good rest. Don't look at me like that. I know, I'm the world's worst. I'm trying, folks. I'm trying, and I want you to try. Giving yourself, your body, your mind, your heart, time to recuperate, it's important. Rest. He laid down under the tree and fell asleep. He's resting. All at once an angel touched me. Well, I wish God would just send an angel to take care of my knee. Yeah. The angel 
told him, get up and eat. He looked around. There by his head was a cake of bread over the hot coals, a jar of water. That's all good and well, but do you notice he did something? He ate and drank. He did what he was instructed to do. He put something into his body that was going to give him some energy. He, he rehydrated himself. He, he fed himself. And then, I love this, then he lay down again. More rest. That's what he needed. He took the initiative. And, and, and then he took steps to become productive again. Look, look at what happens here. Strengthened by that food and the following rest, he, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. He was strengthened. Listen, sometimes just doing the littlest things, the simplest tasks, taking the littlest bit of initiative will give us some renewed strength. And he goes to the place where he can meet God, the mountain of God. And once he gets there, he continues to take care of himself. He found a cave. He found shelter. He went in. He spent the night. He slept. He rested again. Friends, listen, I understand. I, I, I keep saying this, and I know some of y'all look at me and say, he doesn't know what in the world he's talking about. I lived with a mother who was clinically depressed. I love her. She's the salt of the earth. She's a godly woman. She's wonderful. Please don't think lowly of my mother, but she has struggled with this all of her life. I have a sister. Wonderful, godly woman, but she struggled with this all her life. I do know what I'm saying to you. I shared with you last week that there was a time about 18 years ago when I stood on an edge, and I did. I had a counselor friend who told me, Tim, you're not clinically depressed, but you're standing on the edge of a black hole. And if you step in it, if you let yourself go down that hole, you can probably get out of it, but you're going to spend the rest of your life circling that hole. If you'll walk away from it now, you'll be okay. By God's grace, I was able to walk away. But folks, I've never forgotten what it feels like to look into that hole. And I pray I never do. I'm not telling you there's an easy walk. I'm not telling you there's an easy way. But I'm telling you, sometimes you have to do what you can. You can't sit there and say, I can't do this. I tried that. It didn't work. I laid in bed and refused to get out of bed and go to the office and encounter people because I had nothing left to, do, to give. It didn't work. You have to get up. You have to do something. Elijah got up. He traveled to the mountain of God. He positioned himself to have a fresh encounter with God. And can I just tell you something? When you're struggling against yourself and against your body and maybe even against God, having a fresh encounter with God is not a pleasant experience. God humbles us. He reveals the things we've overlooked, the things we've neglected. Sometimes seeing the truth is painful the way God reveals it to us. And so I want to ask you to do one more thing in this process. And that is simply to embrace God's care. Embrace God's care. I am convinced that God speaks to us often, but we don't hear. I am convinced that God speaks to us probably on a daily basis. We don't want to listen to what he has to say. Elijah thought, listen, I've gone through all this and now here I stand and I, I'm in this cave and I, I could have died under the tree, but God wouldn't leave me alone. And so here I am now, I ought to at least hear him out. 
But before I do, God, let me plead my case to you. Let me just remind you how good I've been. I, I have been very zealous for you. Me. Not your people. Not the Israelites. No, they've fallen away. They've broken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've slain your prophets. I'm the only one. They're trying to get me now. Listen, I just want to tell you something. Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. All right? Elijah probably was a little bit paranoid, but you know what? Jezebel had already told him, I'm going to kill you. Just because he was paranoid did not mean she was not out to get him. But I read this verse and it it haunts me because it, it sounds so much like what we do so often. See how good I've been, God? But look at what those other people have done. You people. If y'all would just get it right, it'd be so much easier for me. That's what Elijah's saying to the nation of Israel. And then you have to do the most difficult thing in all the world, embrace the truth. When God calls you out, go. It may not be pleasant. It may not be easy. You may not see what you expect to see or hear what you want to hear, but go. And understand something. God is not trapped into doing things the way you want him to do them or expect him to do them. Elijah had been on the mount at Carmel. He had seen the power of God fall in fire and consume not just what should have been consumed, but even the things that were non-consumable. The rock, the dirt, the water. It was all burnt. Why? Because that's the power of God. He can do anything. He can be anything. And he can appear to us any way he desires. Elijah walked out. On the side of that mountain, he knew the God of power, of might, of fury, of fire. He wouldn't have been surprised to to meet God in the wind or the earthquake or the fire. But God didn't reveal himself the way that Elijah expected. See, all of those things happened. And the writer tells us, God wasn't in that. Then God revealed himself in a new, gentle way. Sometimes he does that. Then there was a whisper. You ever had God whisper to you? I don't think God whispers to us until we're desperate. I don't think he whispers to us until we're broken. So if you can say, God's whispered to me, I I know you've been through something. When God whispers, it's an amazing thing. I want you to look in your Bible. I want you to look at the bottom of verse 12 and read forward from there. After the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face. He knew. He knew. He's here now. He pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, I think it was still that whisper. 
What are you doing here, Elijah? Sometimes we have to endure the fury to learn to hear in the silence. What are you doing here, Elijah? Friends, don't be afraid to receive help from the healer. Elijah was drawn out to stand before God. What a frightening place to be. Standing before God. But that's where we find hope and healing. That's where we find truth and transformation. That's where we find strength in his salvation. When we refuse the help that God offers in and through himself and and in and through the others he places in and around our lives, it's self-destructive, it's unrealistic, and ultimately it's foolish on our part. I've had people tell me there's no hope, there's no help. They think their situation is untenable, it's irreparable. But I want you to hear me this morning. I want you to hear my heart. God has a plan. He always has a plan. God wants to love and use his children. But we have to be usable. I want you to know this so too. If, if we are not willing to be usable, God still has a plan. And his plan will be fulfilled. And he will use others. When Elijah, hearing that whisper say, what are you doing here, Elijah? He went off on his prepared speech again. Lord, me. Me alone. I'm the only one. I have been zealous for the Lord God Almighty. But these people. And I think God was probably sitting there shaking his head and saying, you still don't get it, do you, son? So let me outline my plan for you one more time. Go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. Anoint Hazel king. Then go down here and anoint Jehu king. And then go find Elisha. Anoint him to be a prophet to succeed you. You see, my plan's going forward. The things that I've said I'm going to do, I'm going to do. The things that I have pronounced are going to happen, are going to happen. And it's going to be with you or it's going to be without you. If you're not ready to accept where we are and who you are and who I am and what I can do, then go ahead and go anoint those who are going to carry out my plan. I just want you to understand with me this morning, my friends, when you think, when I think, when we think that our situation is untenable, when we think it is irreparable, God has a plan. And the plan is for His work to continue to be completed, and to be accomplished because ultimately, through all of our struggles, our successes, our failures, our wins, our losses, it is all about His glory. That's it. Listen, I'm not trying to oversimplify, undersimplify, or anything else. I want you to know, I know, the struggle is real. 
For some people, it's more real than it is for others. But for all of us, there is help available through our relationship with God. Some may require more help. They may need their friends to come alongside them and carry them. They may need counselors who know how to help them or train to do so. They may need physicians who can help them to understand what's going on in their bodies. They may need medications to help with imbalances and things that just aren't functioning properly. But I want you to hear what I'm saying right now. The best first step that anyone can make is to come to the Father through Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. That gives you a baseline for everything else to be built on. For those of us who are in that relationship already, we have hope. Even in the darkest days, we have hope because we are children of the Father who is the Almighty and the All-Knowing. And in Him, we possess amazing resources that allow us to see life and see the world from a different perspective. What's that mean? Simple. You're never alone. Even when you find yourself in the dark place, if you'll let it, the light will shine. God is there. Embrace the hope that he offers. Embrace the future that he's building. And confront whatever lies ahead of you. Simple? No. No. We don't want to talk about it, but it's real. Probably very few families represented in this building this morning have not had or been touched by depression. I've had the opportunity I'm not going to say blessing or privilege. I've had the opportunity to minister to families as we prepared for conducted funeral services when depression took its toll. Folks, that's a speed bump none of us want to hit. And it's a speed bump I never want to look at again. And I'm not sitting here telling you that here's a quick fix. Here's an easy cure-all. But I am going to tell you this, and I want you to hear me very clearly, and I'm done. I know you can say thank you later. I want you to listen. You may hide it from everyone in your life. Spouse, children, siblings, co-workers and friends. But God knows the battle you're fighting. And you are not alone. Oh, you could have a lot more company and a lot more companionship and a lot more help if you'd let people come alongside you and know you need help. But if you're not willing to do this, please understand, you're not alone. Because the God who created you and the God who knows you is looking at your heart and he's right now... He's aware of those tears that you're weeping inside. He knows the darkness you have been and are walking through. And he alone 
can give you the comfort you need today. I'm going to tell you something as a pastor and just as a guy. I am so thankful that God has blessed me with a family of faith, a people that I can be honest with, that I can struggle alongside of, and a people who will let me help them when I can. And if you're a part of that, you should realize what a great gift God has given you. But if you're not, and you're not one of his children, you need to understand that what I'm offering to you this morning is one of the greatest resources known to the world. It's been rejected by the world, but it's still available. The question is, will you receive what God offers you through his son, Jesus Christ? Will you let that impact your life? promise you this more speed bumps coming you better get ready let's bow our heads together In just a moment we're going to stand together and sing song of commitment, a song of surrender. I, I want to just give you the opportunity this morning to respond to the Lord. It may be that you're here and you're saying, I want that relationship with, with God that you're talking about. I'm not sure how to get that. I'm not sure what's involved in that, but I want that. Uh, listen, I want to invite you, if that's the case, would you come and just take me by hand and say, Pastor, I want that relationship. I will not embarrass you or put you on the spot, but I would love to visit with you. I'd love to be able to share with you from the Word of God how you can become a child of God today. It may be that you're sitting out here and right now you, you're saying, man, he described me this morning. No, I didn't. God did. And my friend, maybe you just need to talk to him. When we stand and begin to sing, you don't have to sing. Talk to God. If you're hurting, cry out to him. He'll hear your cry. Even David wrote in the Psalms, he said, I love the Lord. He heard my cry. If you're hurting, if you're, if you're broken, if you're struggling, cry out to him. But I'm pleading with you, don't do that and walk away without getting help. You want someone to pray with you? I'll pray with you. Come on. You need to get hooked up with, with someone else who will walk alongside you and help you hold on to that burden and hold it up. This is a great place for that. Maybe you need to be a part of this fellowship. and See what God might do in your heart and life going forward. Whatever it is that God's speaking to your heart, I just pray you'll hear Him and be obedient. Father, I thank you this morning for your word. Lord, I wish, I wish you'd chosen someone else to preach this message. I, I don't like to have to talk about brokenness like this. I don't like to have to admit the brokenness in my life or in my family. But Father, I know that your word is a word of healing and wholeness. 
that your spirit is a spirit who brings peace and comfort. That you are the God who can take what is broken and make it new like like it was never broken before. So, Father, we come before you asking for your touch. Lord, there's some of your children in this place, like Elijah, they're, they're, they're weary, they're tired, they're worn down. They've cut themselves off. Oh, they're sitting here in a crowd, but they're isolated. They get up and go to work, and they work in the midst of a, a bunch of people, but they're isolated. And today, they need to hear your voice. There's some in this room who are broken by, by guilt, broken by sin. They've never acknowledged that sin. They've never asked for forgiveness. They've never received what you offer. And, and Father, today they're, they're sensing that brokenness and they know there's a need. I pray, Father, draw them to yourself. May your Holy Spirit just reveal to them your offer of life, abundant and full. Father, I look across this room, I see faces, I, I know people. You look and you see their hearts. You know those who are struggling and broken, those who are hurting and despairing. You know those who need help. You know those who are at the end of the line. You know those who are sitting under the tree right now and saying, Father, I'm done. Father, I pray. I pray that you would just place it in every heart. Reach out one more time. Risk one more time. Take a chance on a brother or sister just one more time. Father, only you can do what I'm asking. We're not capable of doing it on our own. We're not able to do it for each other. In fact, we're just kind of helpless, hopeless folks here. But you can do it. And so, Father, through the power of your Spirit, through the power of your Son, Jesus Christ, I'm asking you to do it. Move in this place. Move in hearts. Wake people up. Draw them to yourself. And help them, Father, to reach out to what only you can give. Be glorified, Father, through what you do. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.